Father, I thank you so much. Uh, help us understand the ways that you've blessed us. We so often go um, many days or weeks or months or even years without turning and thanking you for many of the most important blessings in our lives. I pray that you would help us be more grateful people. And today I pray that you would unite us as a church and that we would live a life that pleases you, that honors you, and that brings glory to you before a watching world. I ask for your power and your blessing as we approach your word and seek to understand how it is you call us to live, how it is you call us to think. I ask that your presence would be felt powerfully in this room. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3. It honestly wasn't very difficult uh, deciding what the first message ought to be because Thanksgiving is coming up, so most people preach some Thanksgiving or gratitude-themed message leading up to Thanksgiving, and I've never done that before, so I wanted to do that, and then on top of that, it's my first Sunday here, and so gratitude ought to be at least the theme of everything uh, that we're feeling, that hopefully you are feeling as well, uh, just witnessing God working in, in powerful ways and bringing us here. So if you would, turn with me to Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, chapter 3, and I will read verses 1 through 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk, from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is neither Jew, Greek, nor and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, 
kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So, what we're going to do, I'm going to try to cover the majority of this text, and then we're going to focus in on verses 15 through 17. But I thought it would be important to look at what Paul says leading up to those verses so that we can understand them in context. Chapter 3, in general, is a summary of what Paul has been teaching in the chapters leading up to uh, these commands. And this is Paul's pattern, usually. He teaches theologically, he speaks about the realities of the gospel, and then he goes to application. Teaches doctrine and then practice, right? And so verses 1 through 4 really are a summary of what he's already said. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. It seems from reading Colossians that the main purpose Paul writes the letter is to restore the church's confidence in the gospel itself. And might I argue that this is something we have to practice and exercise all the time. We can sometimes set the gospel aside, like, I've got that, I'm saved, I understand the gospel, I understand how God worked to save me, but through life, through trials, through doubts, we must maintenance our confidence in the gospel. <coughs> the central need of the church in general is to restore and build and to feel our confidence that the gospel is, in fact, true and that its claims are real, that it's not too good to be true. That this is what is offered to us through Christ. In a way, he is saying, if this is all true, here's how you ought to live. Right? So that's the, this, these four verses are the catalyst for what comes next. <clears throat> If all these things are true, and he does use the conditional here, if then you have been raised with Christ, and then he goes on and on. So if this is true in your heart, if you really hold to this, if this is what is most important in your life and in your mind, 
the gospel of Jesus Christ, then here is what that looks like practically day by day. Okay? And I'll just go ahead and let the cat out of the bag, really. The emphasis of this message, as I said earlier, is about thanks and gratitude and feeling grateful. But these four verses that I just read are the ground or the catalyst, as I said, for every one of Paul's commands. He commands a lot in these passages, a lot of imperatives, as we would say. Do this, don't do that, put on this, put off that. But the reason he can say that with confidence and with boldness to a group of people is because if they really hold to these great truths, these glorious realities, then that is what that type of life is what we have been granted. So we don't have time to do justice to all the verses leading up to 15 through 17. But it could be said, and we'll, we'll look at this later, that gratitude and thanksgiving are, in a way, the last conclusion, if you will. The, the, the result of the result, as you live the life out that God intends you to live, that gratitude is underneath it all, and it is also what is resulting from a sanctified life. So thanksgiving and gratitude, very popular this time of year. Uh, but unless you have a firm grasp of what Paul talks about in these first four verses with the beauty and the glory of the gospel, then it's just nice sentiments or emotions that businesses use to make you buy stuff. Right? What is the ground of your gratitude? Why do you feel grateful? Why ought you feel grateful? To whom ought you to have gratitude? And he says in verses 3 and 4, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. If you can grasp and hold on to the truths presented in just those two verses, gratitude will result, and it will lead to this transformed life that he explains in the following verses. So let's look at it, and we'll try to move quickly through to verse, uh, to verse 15. So just a couple of things to note. I'll read verses 5 through 11 one more time. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. A few things to note. Again, we won't be able to touch on everything. He says, put to death. This is 
an imperative, as I said. But the way he phrases it, if you look at the original grammar, is that it doesn't indicate a one-time event. This is something that ought to be done continually. Be putting to death is a way you could translate it. Be putting to death the things that are earthly in you. So it's continual. He's not teaching sinless perfection. There are those who think and there are those who maybe feel that sin is just a thing in their past. Sin is something that you've completely conquered or lived live completely free from. Be killing sin. This is the idea that, that it, as we go through life and as we await the return of our Lord until he takes us home, we will be in the process. It is our duty as Christians to be putting sin to death in our lives. So it's continual. Additionally, it's aggressive, right? This is very aggressive terminology. It's just, it, I mean, if you look at the original word, it, it, it's where we get our word mortify. We are to put it to death, to make it dead, to kill it, to make war against sin in our hearts. Paul says in Romans 8, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So that's the first observation. Continual and aggressive is how we ought to view our holiness. Second observation is that all these yous are y'alls, are plural, right? <laughs> Very rarely do you see Paul speaking in the singular. So you, all of you, together, be putting sin to death every day. Holiness is not an individual quest. It's not going to happen. You're not going to live up to the standard of the calling of the gospel of Jesus Christ by trying to build this in yourself, by secluding yourself from other people and just focusing in on holiness. It doesn't work that way. You, all you, together, y'all, kill sin together. The author of Hebrews says, Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is a fantastic passage in so many ways, but the idea is that if we didn't have one another exhorting one another, that we will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So none of these commands are lived out in isolation. Your brothers and sisters are the ones that God is using to make these things happen in your life. We're a city on a hill, a family, a kingdom, a brotherhood, a people, a bride, all together as one. So note that this list is uh, an equal opportunity offender. As I read through it, 
It covers everything. There's not one person on earth or in this room that can't find themselves at some point in violation of one of these commands. However, remember that the heart of this passage is building towards a crescendo that ends in gratitude. Okay? So it's not... The response to lists of expectations is usually uh, not good. When someone approaches you, let's say you're taking on a new job, or you know, you've got a requirement with the government that you have to meet, you know, there's a list of requirements that you've got to do, and some of them are very rigorous. The response is rarely ever something positive. But Paul wants our response to these commands to be gratitude, and we'll see how here in a bit. Let's look at verses 12 through 17 now. So we've talked about what to put off, what to kill, what to strip off from ourselves, the attitudes, the behaviors, the feelings that are displeasing to God that do not accord with the new man, the new life in Christ. And then he begins to explain what the new life looks like. Put on then, or clothe yourself as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, Humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So he says, put on then, clothe yourselves. So we have the put off, strip yourselves, put to death these things and put on these other things. It's important to note that these are two active commands. These are not part one and part two of a linear quest or a journey. You don't, you don't only start putting on if you've got the put off completely down because you'd never start. Be putting off and be putting on. The Puritans spoke of this as mortification and vivification, if you want a really fancy word. Vivification. To bring these things to life, to put these on, to wear these things, to live out the life of the new man in Christ. So every day, just to, just to kind of picture it in your mind, you're taking off old clothes, the old man, and the putting on the new clothes, the new man that God has given you in Christ. Every day, put off and put on. This is continual repentance and growth. It doesn't stop. It only gets deeper and more involved. So you could ask Paul, how? How do we put on and put off? simultaneously. And as I said, the message can be discouraging. If you read this list in isolation, 
you, and someone were to come with you and just separate all of the imperatives out, you do this, don't do this, do's and don'ts, right? And that can crush the soul. But, as we read in Romans 8, but if you by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We can only do these things. We can only live this way. We can only do the putting off and putting on, the killing and bringing to life by the Spirit. As we read last time we were together in Philippians 2, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. We are incapable of this putting off and putting on without his work and his power in us. And the the dangerous part about that is you can trick yourself into thinking you're being successful without any reliance on the power of the Spirit. There's counterfeit holiness, counterfeit humility, counterfeit purity. And the way you know if it is or isn't is you'll usually be stuck in one or the other. You'll either be really, really good at putting off the old life, but you don't exhibit any mercy, kindness, compassion, love for one another, bearing with one another. Or you can be the complete opposite. You can be really good at being compassionate, nice, and humble, and loving, but you haven't put off anything. You have malice in your heart. You have anger. You have unrepented sin. So the true life of the Spirit holds both simultaneously as corresponding works of the Spirit in your heart. That's what He does. That's the renovation of or heart surgery that he works as he moves. So now we come, with all of that said, you might be thinking, wow, we're just getting through the introduction. Um, That's context to build up to understand these passages about Thanksgiving, or at least Paul's commands about Thanksgiving, in their proper place. So he says in verse, let me read verses 15 and 17 one more time. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called, in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, In word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So it's apparent that many preachers go to this verse uh, around Thanksgiving. So I just typed in, you know, I use Bible Gateway. It's It's a website. So you just type in Colossians and it immediately suggested Colossians 3, 16 and 17. Because this phrase thankful or being Giving thanks occurs three times, so it's, you know, one of the most returned passages. So, and it's actually, the reason I, we've spent as much time as we had on verses 1 through 14 is because these passages 
You couldn't actually say these verses are about gratitude only. That's not the main point. We'll see that as we go on. Gratitude in isolation doesn't make any sense. We've tried to set it in its proper place, though, to understand how gratitude and how thankfulness can can actually happen in our hearts. That it's not just something we try to force out of ourselves when we get together with family around Thanksgiving time. Or a thing we try to force ourselves to feel in a prayer before a meal. But that we can actually go through life, through the entire calendar, feeling grateful. Having gratitude in our hearts. That our capacity for being thankful and grateful to the Lord is increased. You ever wondered why it's so hard? I mean, does, is anyone just knocking gratitude and, and thankfulness out of the park? I mean, it's so, and, and we are extremely blessed by the world standards, right? I mean, I know that there, there, everyone in this room has suffering and, and difficulty, but to compare compared to even many people in our country now, I mean, you think of the fires and I mean, we, we have it pretty well, I mean, on average. And yet it's so hard to feel grateful for any consistent period of time. It's not overstating to ca- the case to say that gratitude or thanksgiving is one of the themes that Paul Uh, highlights in Colossians in general. You could read through it, and in many places he talks about being thankful and actually he himself giving thanks for the church at Colossae. But what I want to focus on on these verses is Paul gives what I would call three contexts or sources of gratitude. We'll look at them in order. Verse 15, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. My argument here is that the peace of Christ is the first or most significant cause of gratitude. The way we usually think of gratitude is I receive a benefit, I've got a blessing, so I feel good about that, who should I be grateful to? We're Christians, so we give thanks to the Lord. That's the usual movement of gratitude. Something good happens, we give thanks to who we believe gave us that thing, or helped us in that way. But Paul says, let the peace of Christ, this objective, separate, idea from any circumstance, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. This is fascinating terminology. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The word there is where we get the term arbiter. And you, Christian, let the peace of Christ rule or be the arbiter of your emotions, your feelings, This essentially means you filter your emotions and your deepest yearnings of your heart through the peace 
that is afforded you in Christ. You see this in John 14. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. We actually heard that verse. So this essentially means to be stubborn with yourself. And don't let yourself feel, yearn, or mourn, or feel in any other way that is out of touch with the peace of Christ. When the peace of Christ is the arbiter in our hearts, gratitude and thankfulness result. Again, and I keep coming back to this, this is a plural command. You all together let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. It's so hard to keep our eyes fixed on the things above. And to make sure that the peace of Christ has the supremacy in our hearts. And we can't do this alone. And there are numerous things that waylay us. I mean, this, this trip itself. I mean, we're coming up here to serve and do something I've wanted to do for a long time, and I get to preach, and we get to serve the Lord together, and one thing happens after another, and it's just so hard to maintain that peace of Christ, and we need each other. Exhort one another. This is what he's saying, that when we see a brother or sister not letting the peace of Christ rule in their hearts, that we would say something to them. Or when we know that we're not letting the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, that we would ask them for help. We would be always pointing each other towards the Lord. Together we can, by the Spirit, bring these things out in each other. And that leads to the next cause of gratitude. Verse 17. I'm sorry, the second half of 16. Actually, the first. <laughs> I am tired. <laughs> Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We have looked at the peace of Christ. Now let the word of Christ dwell in you, again, a plural you, richly. Let the peace that the word of Christ dwell in you together richly. So, and he actually gives many practices, uh, participles, if you will, to, to, to give us a picture of what he's thinking when he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. If he had just said that in isolation, we wouldn't really know what he's meaning. Well, how, how do we let the word of Christ? Does that mean I, I memorize the whole Bible? Um, does that mean, you know, we have it playing on the radio the entire time that we don't watch TV? We just, you know, we just read the Bible. What, what does he mean when he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly? And he gives us the answer. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness. 
And he even says, I know this is hard. When you see a brother in error or a sister in error, it's difficult to confront them. It's difficult to say the right things to say what needs to be said. But if we're going to have a shot at the type of life that the Lord wants us to have, we ought to be teaching and admonishing one another. That's not just the pastor's job. The doctrine, the truth of Scripture is too important to leave to just a few people. The church is the guardian of the right teaching. Orthodoxy is the responsibility of the church. Doctrine and music, he says. So he talks about teaching and admonishing, and he says, and singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. And many times the people who love theology or the people who love music don't really get along. And it's funny, like, well, it better have, you know, a PowerPoint with verses and, you know, we got to got to parse some verbs here, and then, you know, have the musical, which I, I play an instrument, but I don't consider myself very musical. But we need both. That to have the word of Christ dwell in us richly, we require teaching, words that we study, and then also words that we sing. And these overlap, right? This is part of how you have the peace of Christ dwell, uh, rule in your hearts, that you are reminded and taught those things by your brothers and sisters, and then you sing them, even if you're struggling to believe them. That you're essentially preaching yourself to yourself through the Psalms that this is how I ought to think and feel today. The last, he says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So we have seen the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts, the word of Christ dwelling in us richly. And then he says, do everything, all of your verbing, all of the verbs that you do, whatever you're doing, do it in the name of Jesus. What does that mean? What is the namesake of Jesus? What does it mean that we would do even something as menial as washing the dishes or fixing a flat tire, which I've had to do too many of those, in the name of Jesus? And again, Paul gives us the answer. There's more that could be said about this idea. and Hopefully, in the years to come, we'll see more of that. But at least here in this passage... He gives us a participle. Giving. Do everything in the name of Jesus. Giving thanks to God the Father through Him. We see this in 1 Thessalonians 5. Paul says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. All circumstances. That we glorify 
the Lord, that we do everything in the name of Jesus. This is how we can make our lives about Christ, that we give thanks in all circumstances. And how in the world can we do that? The Bible never minimizes suffering. And I'm not here to do that today. There are many in this room who have suffered greatly, and many in this room who have loved ones who have suffered even more. And I don't know which is worse. And the Bible never looks at that, and never takes that suffering and says, yeah, but that's, that's no big deal, don't worry about that. You know, we've got our faith, and we've got our love for each other. Never does that. But it does say, it does encourage us, it shows us that even all of this suffering, the difficulties that we face, as great as they are, and it never minimizes them, all of that is to prepare us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So the Bible, in many places, I mean, you can read Lamentations, right? Paul himself, you read Romans 9, the first, Places in the Corinthian correspondence, like the, the Bible underscores suffering. And it says, yes, even so, this is just preparing us. So if, if these great and difficult circumstances that we have each faced in our lives are just preparing us, then how great must that glory be? So how can we give thanks in all circumstances? We'll, we'll try to keep it just in this passage to go for the answer. For you have died. And you might respond to that, those, those words and say, how's, how's that supposed to make me give thanks in all circumstances? For you have died. If you understand what he's saying there, that in the cross, in Jesus' death, you died. That your guilt that you have before a righteous judge, that the wrath that was due to you because of your sin, because of my sin, that person died. So much so that Paul just says in the plainest terms he can, for you have died. This is the gospel and it's under siege today because this idea is not popular that in Christ he took on our sin and died in our place. So how can you give thanks in all circumstances? You've died. And all of the wrath that God had against you and me and our sin is put to death. And he came out of the grave. So the wrath is gone. You've died. First Thessalonians 5, 9 through 10. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, alive or dead, we might live with him. And not just that we have died, 
for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Christ's indestructible life has become yours. This is the exchange. He took on our sin, died in our place, so much so that he can say, you have died. We are in Christ through faith, so his life then becomes ours. But he lives forever. He laid his life down and he picks it up of his own accord. And that life, that indestructible life of Christ, the eternal one, the one who sustains all the world by the word of his power, that life has become yours. So put very simply, O Christian, we win. We win and there is not even a chance of defeat because Christ is the victor. He has forever and once for all time won and defeated death, Satan, sin, evil, decay, and doom. And all that really remains for us is to bask in the glory of his victory. And that is how we give thanks in all things. It's not some type of asceticism where we ignore suffering or we think that in some way we should just welcome it and just put our minds somewhere else while we go through trials, but we appreciate and we feel the gravity of the suffering in this life and say, yes, but this, as difficult as this is, Paul says these light momentary afflictions are preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. So just a few points of application. Number one, set your minds on things above. Everything we've been discussing flows from the life of the mind. How do you see the world? Is it through the lens of you having died and your life being hidden with Christ and God? Or is it your job, your education, your career, your ministry, your family? All very good and important things. But the way that we should see the world, the lens through which we should understand our lives is through our having died and our life being hidden with God in uh, with Christ in God so set your minds on things above remind yourself when you wake up in the morning you don't wake up contemplating your eternal security if you have just come and talk to me because that's fascinating I want to figure out what you ate you know you don't stumble into these things this is, this is part of why coming together as a body is so important and why it's important that the preacher, whoever he is, proclaims these truths and doesn't make it about themselves. So we need to remember, we need help to put our minds on things above. Because we are so prone to doubt. Second, 
Be stubborn with your own heart. Don't let your heart take you down dark paths. Depression and sorrow are real and dangerous, and I'm not trying to minimize those. There are many people who need a lot of help. But you have to preach to yourself the truths of the gospel. You can The most worshipful thing you can say in many points of your life is to say, no, I will be happy in God to yourself. Third, entrust yourself to the teaching and admonition of brothers and sisters in Christ. All the plurals that we saw in this passage, it's all, it's all you all together. It's not you as an individual Christian getting this together. And if you haven't entrusted yourself to the teaching and admonition of your brothers and sisters, there's no one who can confront you, tell you you're wrong about a thinking or an acting or a doing, any of your verbs, you're in danger. And you won't have a shot at living a grateful and joyful life in Christ if you've cut yourself off from the teaching and admonition of your brothers and sisters. I may have said this back in October, but eternal security is a community project. We help each other persevere. And the people in this room are those that God has providentially aligned with you in this time and place to help you. In real community with brothers and sisters, we are exposed to more grace. Why would you cut yourself off from the grace of God? Gathering with his people is one of the main venues of his grace. Also, this is number four, distinguish blessing and distraction. Right? To feel grateful often comes from the Lord blessing us and him working in our hearts and we're, we're enabled to feel more grateful. But many times we receive things or we do things and we think they're blessings, but they're distractions. The author of Hebrews says, lay aside every weight and the sin. Two categories. So you might ask, you know, well, why are you asking me to stop that? Or why, why, should, why should I stop doing this thing or, or going to this place? It's not sin. But is it a distraction? Is it preparing us for greater joys? Number five, be encouraged by commands. The fact that, I mean, we didn't have time to focus on all of them and we, we would have been here all day or longer. And we've probably gone a little bit too long. This is a lot of commands, a lot of imperatives. And Paul, at the end of it, though, says, be grateful, be thankful, feel gratitude. How? Because the implication is, through the Spirit, this is the kind of life that's available to you. This isn't just for the super, you know, ultra-level Christians. 
who have been at it for, you know, five decades and have read all the books and gotten the degrees. This is for all Christians. And by the Spirit, you have a shot at this. I mean, does this not stir any excitement in your heart? As I read these lists, did it just create frustration and angst? Oh, look at all those requirements. This is how this is how you can know. I mean, John even says this. This is how we know that we've come to know him, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. So how did your heart respond when I read those lists? Was it frustration, fear, anxiety? The Christian responds knowing God will work this in me. And he's made it possible by the Spirit. It will be work. But he has made it possible. Finally, number six, celebrate. Christians are far too often associated with doom and gloom and over-seriousness. If what we believe is true, and it is, then we ought to be, we should be, we get to be the happiest people on earth. And it ought to look that way in our gatherings. It ought to feel that way if there is an outsider, the Bible's term for someone who doesn't know the Lord, who comes into our midst, who comes over to your house, that we would be the happiest because we have the confidence that this is my Father's world. And all that he has is mine in Christ. I mean, this this is what the Jews criticized Jesus for. He's too happy. Right? He associates with drunkards. He he comes with feasting and the joy. You know, they, they liked John for a little bit because he was really serious. You know, repent and the kingdom of God is near. And then Jesus comes and he's, it's, it's joy. And they're, they're freaked out by it. That's the kind of testimony, the kind of life, the kind of display we ought to have to the world, that we have joy in God. And if you don't, that's item number one, regardless of what time of year it is. Find your joy in God. And if you don't believe in Him, ask. Happiness in God is the definition of true spirituality. Ever thought about that? Joy in God, happiness in God, the deep yes of the soul being directed towards God and what He's done for you and what He promises to do for you. That is true spirituality. Practically, find ways to gather informally and formally. Not to do anything practical, not, not with an agenda or a project, not any doing but just to have Christ-centered joy together. These are victory celebrations when we gather because He has won and we win in Him. When we gather and celebrate and enjoy the fellowship and the fellowship that's afforded to us because of Christ, 
when it's centered on him, then the world knows that our message and our testimony is legitimate. With that, let's pray. Father, help us to set our minds on the things that are above where Christ is. Help us rest and have joy in the fact that we have died in Christ and we live in Christ. I pray that if there is someone here who does not truly know you, that as I was reading the commands, just responded in frustration, anger, fear, that they would seek me out or seek someone out and explain to them the gospel. I ask that you would change lives today by your truth. That we would all together as a family reflect the joy and gratitude and thankfulness that ought to be there because of what you've done. regardless of circumstances. Yes, Father, help us to praise you and glorify you for all of the temporal blessings you give, but help us rest our joy and our happiness in you on the fact that you have already won. I pray as we go into the fellowship hall and enjoy a meal together that it wouldn't just be another time to meet our physical needs, but that you would preside over our gathering. That we would have joy in you and gratitude towards you for what you've done. Pray that you will continue to bless us. We are such a needy people. You give us life and breath and everything. I thank you for the food that we will enjoy. I thank you for the day. And I thank you for North Star. I ask that we would be that joyful light in this community. I pray these things in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.